this is kind of our dream scenario of, you know, a way to engage everyday folks in really the most direct form of policymaking that is possible in our current systems of, of governance. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. This is another interview that has to do with political reform. My guests today, Lynn Davis and Alex Ranieri, are two of the leaders of a group called Healthy Democracy. Healthy Democracy is a U.S.-based, nonpartisan nonprofit that designs and coordinates innovative, deliberative democracy programs. And we're in a time when everything that contributes to the actual on-the-ground practice of democracy is important, including the way we run our local organizations and communities. I found what they're up to at Healthy Democracy very interesting and relevant, and I hope you will listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor my interview with Lynn Davis and Alex Ranieri at Healthy Democracy. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you each mind introducing yourselves and giving me quick biographies in whichever order feels most comfortable to co-directors, which... Always is a little tricky. Did you go first, Lynn? Hi, I'm Lynn Davis. I grew up in the Portland area in Oregon, though lived a bunch of different places, including Hawaii for a little bit in California. I think my first political experience, I remember my parents sort of introducing me to the concept of land use accidentally. We used to live out in the country and there was this row of of different kinds of orchards all the way out to where we lived, apricot orchards and filbert orchards and Christmas tree farms. I started getting replaced by subdivisions. My parents were very opposed to this. And I think that was my my first probably interaction with, with a political topic. And then got much more involved in kind of traditional politics in, in high school and quickly realized that wasn't quite me. And so started to sort of look for other places to facilitate political activity that wasn't a classic kind of political space. Did you go to college? What was your early career like? Yeah, I went to school at a small college in in rural Iowa. Great for for somebody interested in politics, uh, given the, the the presidential now changing presidential uh, primary landscape. And then after college, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I studied abroad or worked abroad for a year as a journalist, and and um, and a little bit back here in the U.S. and and then realized quick that wasn't me. I love a lot of things about it, but man, is that a hard job. And takes a very particular kind of person who isn't me, but um, that I love talking to people and love kind of like being around people and and sort of realized over time. And it took probably about 10 years before I kind of fully realized that being involved with how people communicate and work with each other was was really what I was passionate about and hopefully good at. Cool. Alex, you want to take a swing at doing that too? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us on, Nathaniel. Happy to be here. So my name is Alex Ranieri, Program Co-Director at Healthy Democracy, use she, her pronouns. Um, and I grew up in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area in California as well. As Lynn said, we all have California ties. I'm based in Springfield, Oregon now. And similarly, got first political experiences pretty early on, um, became, kind of came into my political awareness um, during the you know, the beginnings of our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and became very interested at, at an early age about, 
international conflict and peace movements. And that was really what fueled my trajectory into my political life in my teens and early 20s and early career. And I found myself working in more capital P political spaces and policy advocacy organizing. And that brought me to living in a few different states, then kind of had the realization that I, I felt a bit constrained by some of the, the confines of political organizing, especially as a career path, and realized that I was better in service to this work and more wanted my role to be helping people have more nuanced and complex conversations about public policy. So I decided to go back to school and get a master's degree in conflict and dispute resolution and another one in environmental studies and was really thinking about environmental policy mediation and conflict resolution. And then in in grad school, kind of stumbled upon and started working with healthy democracy as a facilitator and realized that deliberative democracy, while I I didn't know it at the time, was kind of my, my true home, you know, combining some of the grassroots principles of of my organizing life with really getting to have the nitty-gritty complex policy conversations that make this world and this field so unique. So I hope that paints a picture. Thanks for the question. (laughs) What's the sort of founding story for Healthy Democracy? Where does it come from originally? Yeah, so it was started in about 2007 or so by a couple of University of Oregon grads and a couple of folks from Minnesota named Ned Crosby and Pat Ben. Elliot Shuford and Tyrone Reitman were the folks at, at U of O. And they, as I understand, it came together around an idea that that kind of bubbled up independently in those two places. Ned and Pat had been working on this sort of concept since the early 70s of a citizen jury with an organization that still exists, which is called the Center for New Democratic Processes, and was one of the founding ideas behind lottery-selected democracy in the modern world at about the same time as this was bubbling up in Europe as well in the early 70s. They had done it at the local government level in a variety of different contexts, but they were really interested in in sort of evaluating candidates. They did that for, for a minute, got in trouble with the IRS because that's very sticky territory, but then, then realized, hey, there's these things, ballot measures in a lot of Western states that are very contentious and where there's a lot of misinformation and it's very just very complicated. Maybe we could use this citizen jury model to try to get better quality voter information about ballot measures. At the same time, there were these folks in Oregon who were seeing the same thing and kind of looking for a way to do voter information about ballot measures that voters would trust that wasn't curated by the media or by experts and all the sort of inherent kind of trust issues that might that exist in our, our society around sort of existing institutions. But what if we had a cross-section of voters sort of doing that vetting of ballot measures? They found each other and created this organization. And we basically did that program for about 10 years almost exclusively before we sort of moved into, okay, let's let's go back again and apply this again to other political contexts. So Alex, what was healthy democracy like when you arrived? When was that and what was the situation? Yeah, I came into Healthy Democracy right at the very beginning of this pivot from doing state-focused work in the initiative system, as Lynn mentioned, to local government-focused programming. So I was a part of the, the first citizen's jury that Healthy Democracy led at the local government level in Milwaukee, which is a, a city outside of Portland, on councilor pay, city city councilor compensation. So this interesting topic, very discreet, and um, kind of bringing back the citizen's jury model into the organization. I was a moderator on that project, my first kind of foray into the world of deliberative democracy. At that time, it was Lynn directing the program and, and our executive director and an operations manager. So a small team of of three, one of whom was part-time. <laughs> and I continued to be involved as a, a moderator on a, a few different projects. We did a citizens assembly on COVID recovery after that, and then got more involved in the design of a lottery selected panel in Eugene, Oregon, which is where I'm currently based. So I got to kind of grow more involved over the span of a couple of years as I finished school. And then when I came on staff about a year and a half ago, 
healthy democracy was undergoing a pretty big shift in its organizational structure. So we decided to apply our democratic principles internally too, which I think is an, an interesting thing to note maybe for your guests or your audience here. We flattened our structure and are now full co-directorship, the flattened hierarchy. So I got to come in and, and share Lynn's role as program co-director. And now we have an operations director and a director of outreach and communications as well. So we're still a small team, team of four, but we're all very committed to this work. Lynn, can you can you answer the same question, even though maybe those are in the reverse order than perhaps they should have been? But what was it like when you came on board? And also, can you address that flattening from your perspective? Because I think that tells a lot about you, but I'm not sure what exactly. So I'd, <laughs> I'd like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So I, I have been at Healthy Democracy about six and a half years now, which I mean, for someone who was kind of a a vagabond through my 20s and totally unexpected for me to settle into any job for that amount of time. And I I have no concept of, of doing anything else now. I'm so committed to it. But I came in right after grad school. I, I didn't mention I went back to grad school for, for urban planning. I thought I was a planning nerd and then quickly realized, yeah, I am. But also like I, there is this piece about public engagement that I felt like was really missing in the planning world. And that's what I came out of it with. Started poking around on the internet and found this little organization that was looking for a two-month contractor to do some technical support, basically, and logistic support for the Citizens Initiative Reviews, these initiative projects at the time in the summer of 2016. That's how I came into the organization on a two-month contract and then was expectedly laid off and just kind of kept poking around and offering to go apply for grants for myself and that kind of thing. Because <laughs> I just thought, oh, this is absolutely brilliant. I felt like I'd witnessed something that was a democratic miracle that I hadn't seen before, the ability of people across the political spectrum to work together in the deepest way on the most contentious issues. Like it was sort of both of those aspects together. I'll give an example of that if, if you'd like, but eventually was brought in part-time and then became full-time, et cetera. Just sort of hung around for long enough, basically. And that was under an executive director named Robin Teeter, who was absolutely wonderful, sort of helped stabilize the organization after a period of, of some upheaval and created a really collaborative environment, albeit within a traditional executive director, sort of nonprofit model, and as she was retiring in 2018, I think she had been re thinking for a little while, and I had as well, that we should think internally about our democratic values. If we're talking to cities at that point now about trying to get them to, to rethink how they do local democracy, it only makes sense if we sort of walk the walk and experiment on ourselves. And also, it felt like the, the time to do that, to sort of solidify the, the de facto collaborative environment that she had created in a sort of de jour way as in write it into the organization. So that's what we did. And, and the board supported that. And now we have four co-directors. So it's four co-directors, not mm -hmm. just the two of you. Oh, okay. Right. We share um, one job. We share the program's job, but there are equally uh, other directors for outreach and for operations. Yep. Alex, how does that work? I have talked to co-executive directors and of various uh, organizations and, um, a lot of them are doing fine. It's a little like a marriage in some regards for some people in that uh, compatibility is really important. And some of these relationships are easier than others. I have tried to run a nonprofit with a bunch of partners, and I found that to be very challenging after having run some companies as a, a sole owner and a sole decision maker. What's your experience been? Yeah, collaborative decision making is certainly not easy <laughs> sometimes. But I think we're really, really fortunate as a team in that the four of us genuinely like each other quite a bit and, and work together very well. And I think as we're really still incubating this model of the flattened structure, that's just truly a gift to have that camaraderie and trust in each other to, yeah, kind of fumble through what decision-making and shared power looks and feels like in a really safe and, and trusting environment. We're all devoted to this work, very passionate 
it's a learning journey. How we make decisions on a day-to-day basis is a continuously evolving question. We are still very much finding the balance between efficiency and autonomy in each of our own authorities as co-directors and you know the decisions that need to be fully collaborative and take more time. So happy to expound more on that if you're interested. So Lynn, uh, for, for people who are not really steeped in the kind of work you do, could you sort of place this in context philosophically? What are the four of you trying to do with healthy democracy? And you had alluded to an example a minute or two ago, make concrete a little bit of the philosophy also. Yeah, gosh, Alex will have to help me out with this one. But I think the the idea for this field originally came from a desire to democratize the way that some of the otherwise hidden decisions happen within government and and also to provide a way for everyday people to be deeply involved in decision making in a society where we can't all be involved in every decision that's just always going to be impractical so either all or many of us are involved at, a, at an extremely superficial level, which we already have. That's voting, and there can be more of that, and lots of different things of that style. But there's also this sort of missing piece of, well, what kind of de facto happens is that a lot of decisions actually get made within administrations that are very opaque. And how can we democratize those kinds of decisions? And in the same way, help to make government feel like a tool that we can all use rather than an entity that sort of does things to us or for us or that kind of relationship that most of us have with government. One of the immediate concepts that would come to mind is to select folks at random from the general public like we do in the jury system so that you have a chance every so often, probably a few times in your life or who knows how many times if if it were happening very often, to be involved really deeply on one specific issue. And the rest of the time, you know that people just like you are there dealing with all these other issues. And what would that do to our concept of governance and our our thoughts about the system at large if, if we knew that we would have the chance to do that and that other people just like us were doing doing all that stuff, that conceivably that would have a huge impact on our trust in each other and our trust in our ability to govern ourselves, and, and that that is more needed now than even when this concept was created 50 years ago, as we see the sort of declining faith in democracy as a concept, which is really worrying. We need to take some, some serious steps to rethink what democracy means in order for for our faith in our own ability to self-govern to persist. Alex, do you want to say anything else about the philosophical thing and then maybe take a swing at the example part of the question that got left dangling? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So to answer the first question, I think I might describe our work in the context of a, a couple different fields. There's the space that we operate in sometimes is classified as public engagement, right? We work within a context of many other practitioners and facilitators and program designers who think about how to do better civic engagement. And I think I would also describe our work in the context of the broader democracy reform movement. So I think we're often kind of balancing those two levels of thought. Like how do we do deep civic engagement that involves more and different kinds of folks in in in-depth policymaking? And how do we reimagine systems of governance in kind of a broader way? We're talking to folks thinking at many other scales, not just the local government level, but state, national, about how, how we do democracy differently on a fundamental level. But to get back to kind of an example, and most of our programs, as Lynn mentioned, these days are at the local government level, we focus on not the highly participatory civic engagement models that just want to bring as many people into a conversation as possible, or get more people kind of participating in these thin mechanisms like voting, like taking surveys. But what we do is we use this 
this ancient tool of the democratic lottery was used back in Athens and kind of the earliest formations of our democracy, as well as in India and kind of co-emerged around the world. And it's a very simple principle, truly, selecting folks at random to take part in really in-depth policy discussions and and decision-making on behalf of the public good. We'll partner with the city and run a democratic lottery. It's a, a panel of often between 20 and 50 folks in the room who look like that city, so who are demographically representative of that city or jurisdiction. And then we engage them in in really in-depth policymaking. So they learn everything they can about the policy question. They spend hours and hours collectively deliberating about the topic and coming to a recommendation. I'll give the example of that first citizen's jury that we ran in 2019 when I first came on board, because I think it's a nice clean example to start with for the audience. It was the Milwaukee Citizens Jury on City Councilor Compensation. As Lynn said, often these processes are used in really sticky, contentious political contexts. So this was a question that City Council, you know, for very good reason, obviously, didn't want to touch. They didn't want to decide how much they should be compensated. And it had just kind of been on the back burner for a long while. We'd been in conversation with them about this this model. They said, hey, I think this might be the perfect topic where we really like a cross-section of everyday folks to learn all they can about the pros and cons of various compensation methods and, and make a recommendation to us. So we convened a citizen's jury that met over a four-day weekend. The panel deliberated intensively on this topic uh, that was a, a panel of, of 20 residents. Lynn, remind me how big Milwaukee is. 20,000. 20, yeah, a city of 20,000. This is the little baby Milwaukee, not the big yes. Milwaukee. <laughs> <Milwaukee> yes. Or- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the panel came out with, with a recommendation that they presented to council on the fourth day in the evening. And after a bit of deliberation, council unanimously adopted the majority of of their recommendation. And so I think that's a great example of how these processes can really build camaraderie, build collaborative spirit among a group of folks who otherwise wouldn't be participating, especially in a kind of obscure policy question like that, and really have serious impact on how decisions are made. I think sometimes... A good way to flesh out the differences with another model, let me just try to illustrate something that we do in my area. So in Washington, D.C., they have these a very hyper-local elected office called the Advisory Neighborhood Commission, and you represent about 2,000 people, and you have six or seven of these people that then kind of make recommendations that go and the city council is supposed to listen to, to give, you know, weight to the, to the opinion of the local community as expressed through their locally elected representatives. My wife spent the last two years doing that unpaid job. And it's a tremendous education about, especially for a spouse, about what goes on in the neighborhood and what the duties are. And just to take one example, so I live two blocks off a thoroughfare called Connecticut Avenue, and it comes up through the city. And one of the disputes right now is whether or not there should be a bike lane added to this. And on one side, to some degree, are business owners and people who are worried about traffic getting worse and feeling like a bike lane would be very bad in both of those categories. On the other side are bike advocates, people who think that that kind of transportation powered by your legs is way superior and lots of good arguments actually in both sides. And there are community meetings where people have a chance to come up to a microphone and express their opinion about this issue and others. There are 
others that are more important or less important. And in any community, I think there are plenty of good-hearted, rational people who engage with this and try to make a good decision. There also seem to be, in every community, people who get extremely exercised about the decision-making and become sometimes unpleasant to deal with because they feel so strongly one way or the other, and the nature of the fight exacerbates that. And it's mediated through these people who are elected, which has certain benefits to choosing them that way because they do face the voters and they think about how people will respond broadly to that. But also they become vulnerable to interest groups. You understand it's like a microcosm of all these legislatures. With that in mind, Lynn, how would you use your process to help out a small mini legislature or a city council or whatever? This is the a basic local conflict with no totally right answer. Mm, yeah, no, that sets it up really nicely. And I, I think, isn't this just the kind of situation that exists at, at the hyper-local level, at the little bit less hyper-local level, at the regional and state level, et cetera? There's two key problems here. And one of them is a problem of, of sort of representation and of, of people who are involved in the decision-making. One thing I want to add to my short exposition is the, that you don't get a representative group of people expressing their opinions. You get the people with the most time on their hands, the people who feel the most strongly, which is quite different in many areas than if you did randomly select people. Anyway, sorry. There's two things that this kind of process uniquely addresses really well. And one is a representation problem. There's two pieces of that representation problem. One is that the vast, vast majority of us, maybe upwards of 99%, aren't involved in these processes for a variety of reasons, availability or just interest or willingness to put yourself in those kind of spaces. And the other piece is the types of folks who are involved, the representation on cross-demographic or ideological lines in those rooms. Yeah, both of those things are very out of whack in almost all of our political spaces. And there's certainly other ways to bring folks in that aren't the lottery, and sometimes very importantly so, targeted engagement to marginalized communities or to stakeholders who really need to be involved, people who are particularly impacted, existing advocacy groups. But we're still missing this vast majority of folks who are just not involved at all, which includes me too these days, incidentally, for the most part. And the lottery does that in a way that we sort of don't see anything else quite able to do it at the same consistent level and to guarantee that that level of demographic representation. That's the other sort of unique factor here. The other thing that, that is really changed here is what happens once folks are in the room. Because even those of us who do participate in these kind of spaces often don't find it terribly enjoyable because of the things that you mentioned about these spaces being built for debate rather than built for collaboration. And they are political system in general is pretty much designed from that sort of debate orientation. So we need to sort of reconstruct the architecture of it from the ground up in order to, to create a different result in the room. And just as one example of how that works. So we know that about 90% of the folks who participate in these kind of lottery selected groups have never done anything like this before. But even those who have, who are likely to be the sort of loudmouths in the room and have strong opinions coming in, we think that the space itself helps everyone collaborate, even if they're likely to, to be sort of predisposed to that. And that was my first experience with this in six and six plus years ago, I'd never seen one of these before, came into a room of 24 people, by definition, about a third Democrats, a third Republicans, a third unaffiliated from across the state of Oregon, rural folks, urban folks, etc. And it was on a tax issue. What could be more contentious at the state level? And there were immediately two people that stuck out to me. One, this taller, middle-aged guy from a small town in Southern Oregon, uh, khaki pants, white polo shirt every day. And there was this woman from the Portland area, bartender, tattoos up one arm and down the other. 
could not be more stereotypical sort of left and right. And indeed, that was their position. As they asked questions, it was very clear where they were coming from on the political spectrum. And I just thought, oh, boy, here we go. This is what this looks like. You know, they're just going to dominate the conversation. And this is going to be a yelling match eventually. Not only was that not the case, but by the end of the process, these were probably the two closest friends on the panel coming out of it. They worked on some committees together a little bit later on in the process as they were editing their final report. And yeah, I mean, they came out the most friendly of anyone. And I thought, oh my gosh, if it can, if it can do that for, for, for those two folks on this topic, then maybe this can work on any topic for anyone. That's kind of heartwarming to hear that. But Alex, one of the things I noticed just in reading a little bit on your website and elsewhere is the incorporation of expertise into the process. One of the things that I would worry about in a randomly selected group of people that don't know much is whether they have the background to make decisions of things that are complicated and require expertise, as many things do. How do you guys bring in people who do know things and how do you avoid those people being treated like they are representing an interest or something like that rather than information? Yeah, terrific question. There's a, a scholar in our field, Helen Landemore, who's based at Yale. I recently heard her use the expression that in these processes, experts and stakeholders are not on top, but on tap. So we really fundamentally think about the role of expertise differently in these processes. Still, the role of stakeholders and background experts is incredibly crucial to that in-depth information gathering phase that panelists go through in the process. And so how we design this is that prior to the panel being seated, we typically convene a stakeholder committee. And the role of that stakeholder committee is to curate background information for the panel, to curate informational presenters, written materials, etc. And so they have kind of their own mini deliberative process to thinking about, okay, what are what is the entire landscape of perspectives on this topic? Who would an everyday person who has no prior experience with this policy area need to hear from to get a handle on the technical background, the policy landscape and context? and the many different positions that are out there, right? Then we go and prioritize those introductory informational presenters, or we don't, the stakeholder committee does, and we end up with a slate of of presenters that the panel initially hears from. So these are stakeholders, experts, kind of covering all of those, those different informational areas for the panel. We really see this as the panel, as much as possible, being in charge of what that information gathering process looks like. And so they are deliberating about and writing and asking questions of those experts. They, as much as possible, are steering that process. So we think about it more as them kind of interviewing these informational presenters, extracting the information they need to do their job rather than deferring necessarily to the expertise of these folks. So just like on a jury, I mean, the panel is in the decision-making position and they're using this wealth of information and expertise and perspective to understand, okay, who has an interest in this question? Where are they coming from? What do we want to maybe take note of, you know, on that position, on this position, file all of that away for their deliberation phase to come. And then once we get through that kind of initial slate of introductory presenters, we always ensure that the panel has the power to select its own presenters. So we, in our last process, the stakeholder committee curated another menu of presenters that was about 150 names, I believe. The panel 
said, okay, we've heard from, from these folks and we really feel like there are X, Y, and Z gaps in our information. So we want this person to speak and, you know, actually this kind of person isn't on the list, but we really think we need to hear from someone in this profession, for example. And so then they steer the remainder of the information gathering process and decide what information they need to complete their task after that. That's pretty cool. One of the things I've noticed is people who have a political axe to grind, who observe decision-making, often have suspicion about how it comes together. They grab onto misinformation. They make accusations sometimes. Somebody's in the pocket of developers. The process by which the people were chosen was rigged. All of the things that we experience nationally and locally. How do you educate people, Lynn, about this process so that they can be willing to accept the findings or the recommendations in the spirit that they're offered. Tell me about that process, because that seems like it has to be an ingredient. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. We live in a country that is hypercritical, sometimes often to the point of, of cynicism, perhaps, but that is a really good thing. Sometimes it goes totally out of hand, but sometimes it is great for for seeing through things. This, these processes, if we're going to do them differently, cannot be a smoke and mirrors sort of operation, cannot be dependent on a PR firm to make them look good. They have to be internally as good as they say they are. So let's start there, first of all, that the process and the content have to be completely separated. There has to be a group like us that's doing just the process stuff and never touching content with a 10-foot pole. There has to be then some kind of method where content gets into the process. If we're talking about a one-time panel, as we've been this whole time, and not sort of a whole system, then there has to be some way for everyday people to learn about council compensation or something that nobody knows anything about. And that group that's sort of curating that introductory information, it is as important how they are selected and as important that that happens transparently as it is that the panel itself is transparently selected. And the lottery happens in a public meeting and all that jazz. In our latest case, that that panel of stakeholders was selected off of a list of some hundred, a lot of different stakeholders, sort of this huge laundry list in 12 different categories, and then actually lottery selected from within those categories to go to the furthest extent possible to make sure that nobody was hand selecting that group. But of course, that's not that's not the only thing. Within the process itself, we think that the best way for the information to be trusted is if the panel, which holds, we think, the best possibility for legitimacy from the outside because they're selected by this lottery, has as much power as possible, as much power over us in terms of overseeing the process and making core process decisions as much as is feasible within an ad hoc project, and all the content or as much of the content power as possible. Obviously, there's that little bit that comes in or that part that comes in from the stakeholder committee, but all of the output has to come directly from the panel very explicitly. So every single word down to the last typo has to be written by panelists, not edited by anybody else, not passed through city staff or through other consultants or anybody else. And panelists have to present it directly themselves to decision makers, no mediation, and we think that's also the best way for for it to sort of get over the dusty document on the shelf kind of problem, where if there's not a direct path to influence, uh, recommendations could get easily sidelined. Now, of course, there is a really important communications role here, too. We have to do all the right things, and then we do have to talk about how all the right things are done, particularly because this is really unique Almost all of our public engagement happens via multiple layers of mediation, very directive facilitation, lots of stuff that's been sort of planned privately and then is kind of exposed to the world in ways that feel like, you know, it's, it's not very transparent. But the core piece is that it, it must be done legitimately first if you're going to try to communicate that it's legitimate because people are smart and they will see through it if it's not. Alex, this seems like it's being used from your examples and other things I've read most 
usefully where there is something that like elected body doesn't want to touch that is complicated and requires kind of a different process to solve and to bring people together around. What's the long-term vision for incorporating this broadly into a healthy democracy? Where is it appropriate? Where might it not work? And if you could wave the magic wand and you know, some of this stuff seems hard to scale, but like, where would you like it to go? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that excellent question. So we have big dreams about how this could, could look and really transform every level of government. At the local level, we, we think that mm, panels of this nature could be institutionalized to remake the very kinds of systems that you talked about with the advisory committee on local planning and and transportation questions. This could be a permanent fixture of how we do politics at the local government level. So advisory committees could be lottery selected and create a much more vibrant sense of, of community and involvement in which it's not just the folks who as Lynn said, are inclined, you know, based on personality, positionality, et cetera, to raise their hand and opt into these spaces. But really, where everyone has the experience of, of being called upon to enact that civic duty and think deeply about different kinds of policy questions on a regular basis. And then that really applies at every level. We could incorporate these on a permanent basis at the state level, at the national level. Some folks in our field are thinking about lottery selecting our legislative bodies, so replacing elected officials. <laughs> we don't have a, a particular position on that kind of institutionalization, but certainly anywhere where we can rethink who is engaged in, in policy. This is a radically transformative approach. I'll take a moment to to offer one example of a program that we recently developed, which is called the Initiative Convention System. So really going back to Healthy Democracy's roots, thinking deeply about the citizens' initiative process. This is a process that was brought into half of our states in in the country in the early 20th century and really delivered much more direct political power to everyday folks in the form of people getting to write legislation, bring it to the ballot, and directly vote on that legislation. Um, So the initiative process is this unique opportunity that folks have to do direct democracy, to write their own laws. And a couple of years ago, we got to design a program that brings democratic lotteries into the initiative system and allows for everyday folks selected by Democratic Lottery to write ballot initiatives directly and then get those ballot initiatives onto the ballot for their fellow voters. And so Lynn might want to expound a little bit more on the initiative convention system idea, but this is this is kind of our dream scenario of you know a way to engage everyday folks in really the most direct form of policymaking that is possible in our current systems of, of governance. Yeah, if I may, could I ask Lynn if he wants to offer anything else there? <laughs> I don't know. You're usurping my role here. <laughs> <laughs> trying to facilitate this conversation over here. But, but I consent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this came out of this sort of, you know, the origins of the organization writing better quality voter information by by a cross section of the everyday public and and then thinking about like we kept having folks in these programs say to us well gosh i mean yeah it was it was interesting to try to get to the basic facts about this measure but this measure is actually really poorly written it's not about you know x or y issue that we think is really important and it should we can we just rewrite it and we always kept thinking gosh there must be some way to get in front of this process and how powerful is the initiative process it's so unique, really. It's the only place that, for those of us who are in states that have it, it's it's really one of, if not the only opportunity we ever have in our lives to have decision-making power over actual policy. I mean, think about that. Like, granted, it's only one vote on a ballot, but still, you're voting directly not on a candidate who will make laws, but directly on a law 
Its origin was in the progressive movement 120 years ago, this idea that is there a way to sort of get around very corrupt state legislatures and and get, you know, the everyday public, whoever could gather enough signatures to get something on the ballot. Well, that system has unfortunately, you know, sort of backfired in a way to become one of the most corrupt systems in in the US in terms of the amount of money spent on these measures and the ability for interest groups and and corporations to say why try to influence a candidate election when we could influence directly exactly the law that we want but if you think about that that power that exists there in the system could we create an a system of of assemblies to blue sky, no framing question, no background, whatever. Think of all the issues that exist in their state. Now, granted, this is a massive undertaking and go through a process of narrowing down to what they can agree on and what they think is most important. And then writing a ballot measure with assistance from from legal experts that would potentially have the power to get directly on the ballot. That could really put a lot of pressure on the rest of the system to become more democratic if the general public had that kind of power to engage with it. But there's lots of other ways, as Alex mentioned, that this this kind of process can have great influence. There's some really interesting stuff happening in at the city level in Europe. Brussels, I think, has just adopted the same system. There several of these kind of systems that are all based on the same design from a community in eastern Belgium, 80,000 people, called Ostbelgen. And the the idea is to create essentially a parallel legislative body that in this case, they don't have an initiative system. They have no direct access to the ballot or to decision-making power. But it is a permanent system where every year, There is a group of lottery-selected folks, I think in that case 25 people, who decide on up to three core issues that the legislature is not dealing with or that they think are really important to be dealt with. And they have the power and the money to commission assemblies on each of those topics every year. And then there's an assembly of 50 people that does a classic sort of assembly process to determine a recommendation on that issue. But this permanent body of 25 still exists. It is rotated out on a continuous basis. So it has some institutional memory and it has the ability to to follow up with those recommendations. That's what's key and what's often missing in sort of a a one-time project. Um, So they have the ability to sort of act as their own lobbying firm with the legislative body to push whatever those sort of recommendations are that, that they have commissioned, basically. And that process in a little bit more elaborate form has been institutionalized by the city of Paris, sort of most notably recently. There is another way to create a a system that will put pressure on the existing representative government to consider seriously the, the issues that they are, for one reason or another, not willing or able to consider right now. I I wonder if you could just, Alex, address one question that's philosophical related to this, which is the sort of Madisonian system of government to protect the country from faction by having breaking up power into different parts, by having, you know, bicameral legislatures, by interspersing elected representatives between the people and decision making for multiple reasons. I mean, there is some merit to that, uh, especially in a time where, just think of the time of Trump, where there's a lot of people fueled by misinformation feeling that create bodies of citizens that may not be making good decisions, right? Like the there, there's there are times and places where people get carried away and don't and don't consider things very well and run amok in their choices, right? We've seen this around the world also. Is it getting harder as we become more polarized? Are you seeing on the ground among the people in the communities that you work in problems with this? Do you worry about like the limits to more democratic processes? How are you thinking about matters like that? Yeah, I'll start off by saying I think realistically, we are a long ways off from ever replacing 
the kind of ultimate political power of elected representatives, right? <laughs> Regardless of whether or not we buy into that or think that that system of democratic legitimacy <laughs> is working <laughs> and whether political elected representatives truly have the, the kind of time and, and wherewithal to effectively represent their constituents. That's a whole other conversation. I think lottery selected bodies are going to be additive components of the political process for the foreseeable future. But just because they're additive doesn't mean that they can't have a transformational influence on how politics works and how we think about the kind of collaborative decision-making that's possible in our political systems. And I think to directly address your question about how those dynamics of political polarization operate in our processes. I'll say a couple things on that. For one, lottery selection is still a great mechanism for diluting the kind of maybe extremist perspectives that you end up having in a room, right? If you randomly select from the general population, the chances of of getting any more than one or two people who kind of fall on quite extreme positions at the political spectrum is quite low, right? The vast majority of people engaged in, in this kind of process are really open to considering many perspectives. So I think there's kind of an inherent quality about random selection, lottery selection, that gets at that, that problem. I also think that they're really important process components that we haven't yet discussed at length here that are very effective, even for folks who come into the room with strong positions, as, as Lynn mentioned. We find that by bringing people into a space in which they truly feel their perspective is going to be valued, where elected officials have already committed to directly hearing a panel's recommendations, to responding to the panel's recommendations, and giving reasons for why or why not they've adopted the recommendations of the panel, people feel quite a large degree of trust in the political process when they're entering that space. They're also paid. That's a really key factor in our processes. They're supported directly to feel comfortable in the deliberative space. And so all these factors combined with then the kind of onboarding we do around how to have collaborative discussions, how to ask good questions of experts and stakeholders, how power and privilege operates in the room and how we can be aware of intergroup dynamics. All these process factors combine to create an environment in which, to some extent, the extreme polarized nature of our political discourse outside of those rooms fades away and folks build trust and rapport with each other, feel that they're doing an important duty. They have some responsibility to their local community and engage in good faith in the process quite often, even regardless of whether they have strongly held positions on politics more, more broadly. Honestly, there's so much to learn here. I appreciate what you guys have said so far. Lynn, is there a question that I should have asked that I haven't? There's a basic thing here. We've used the word citizen quite a bit. So we should just specify that these that, that is lowercase c citizen and that these things are generally open to a, a wide variety of people, regardless of citizenship status. There's something else about the yeah, it's sort of interaction with the with the larger political process, I thought your question there was really interesting. Our system is based on sort of like the trying to solve for the 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 negative aspects of human interaction to create these checks and balances. There's always this this promise of opposition. There's certainly some further question there, but I think Alex, you've incorporated that bit. There's a bit about like the cohesion of the group. Um, I mean, that kind of relates to the information gathering part of the process. One thing we didn't mention during that segment is like that the information gathering stage is 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 not just doesn't just serve a sort of 
um, practical function in terms of the, the legitimacy of how information gets in and the ability of the panel to control its information inflows, but also acts as a process tool for the panel to build group cohesion around a shared purpose. And I think this is what you were just getting to as well, is that there are a lot of folks doing purely dialogue-based processes. And indeed, we have done that as well. But I think there's an interesting question there about like, what is, how is this different from other sort of deliberative processes, perhaps? You see how hard my job actually is? Oh my God, is? It, it totally is. <laughs> <laughs> Getting at the like, when people have a common purpose and that this being like a, a characteristic sometimes of going very local, uh, being a benefit, People want to go national for the for the spotlight, but local is like where we can we can sneak around some of the just big high level ideological stuff and be like, okay, let's collaborate on a on a project, and that starts to break down some of the stuff. People love to work together on a thing. I also think that the exercise of democracy in lots of different ways is important in itself as kind of a practice for how do you behave, how do you solve problems where there are multiple interests. And this country grew up with those kind of things with town meetings and stuff like that. And to some degree, we've delegated that out of the communities, not everywhere and not totally, but it's nice to see ways that bring it back and it seems healthy and it seems like an antidote to some of the cynicism and anti-democratic ideology and efforts that are unfortunately part of our current time. I think we've probably presumed too much on your time at this point, but is there anything else either of you would like to say in in closing? Alex, you should jump in this time rather than turn it to... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've already already bumbled around and basically said, no, I don't think there's... I would have covered the breadth of things here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that the only thing I'd add really echoes what you just shared, Nathaniel. I think one of the most inspiring values in, in our process is helping folks exercise the muscle of what it means to live in a democracy. We're facing increasing disillusionment, polarization, and that comes from a very real and understandable place. Most folks not feeling like there is a a place for them to be involved in politics, to be involved in our decision-making systems for any number of reasons, many, many reasons. This is a way of actively inviting folks and ensuring that logistically, emotionally, (laughs) interpersonally, as many barriers as possible are eliminated for folks to show up in those spaces and practice collective decision-making and self-governance. And often we think about this, as Lynn said at the very beginning, what if government wasn't an entity that we thought of as externally kind of ruling over our lives but a tool that we all used and participated in. I think by exercising that muscle more and more often through these types of processes, we're building the foundational groundwork necessary for us all to feel more invested in democratic system at large. Well, thanks for that. Uh, Lynn, I see that you'd like to have a parting shot also. (laughs) (laughs) That made me think of a concept that I think may be important to mention. I think we need to think more practically than theoretically about participation in our democracy. And one way, one thing I mean by that is that there are tons of theoretical ways that our democracy is currently participatory. Theoretically, there are gazillions of meetings that you can go to and commissions and boards and associations and whatever that you can belong to, theoretically. But practically speaking, the vast, vast majority of us don't. So why not? We have to solve for why not. And one of the reasons is a lack of proactive invitation. One of the reasons is all kinds of barriers. One of the reasons is those spaces are painful and we don't want to participate in them. One of the reasons is 
that we have limited time and we're just trying to get along with our lives. And those are all volunteer-based activities and so attract a, a kind of person that can do volunteer-based activities, et cetera, et cetera. We need systems that are active in trying to break down those barriers and also recognize that those barriers are never going to be fully broken down. And so try to ensure through a stratified process, through a representative sampling, that even with different rates of response, we can get an outcome that looks like the general public at least, that is at least representative on a bunch of different factors of the general public. And most of all, that it is folks who are not currently participating. Because this is the other big piece. I think sometimes in reform communities and in government, we talk about a, a breakdown of trust and that we need to build or worse yet, rebuild as if that existed, trust in government. And I would take issue with that. I don't think we should aim toward creating trust in government if that shouldn't exist. We should have a healthy level of distrust if distrust is warranted. What we need are reasons to trust, practical, legitimate reasons. Why should I trust that, that government is working, that I, people like me are involved? That needs to be proven to me, and our system doesn't prove that to me. And part of our problem is we have some people who campaign to mislead people that things are working worse than they are. It is complicated. I, <laughs> I, I do appreciate both of your time. I think this was very in interesting and educational, and I uh, hope that you guys make progress with this. I'll, I'll be following. That was Lynn Davis and Alex Ranieri. They're at HealthyDemocracy.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.